KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a journey through computation, data analysis, and real-world applications. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. It's back to remote learning for UC San Diego. That will give the university time, they hope, for the big surge in Omicron that's coming to kind of pass through the county. I'm Andrew Bowen with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The FDA has cleared the first pill to treat COVID-19. It will be a very big advance in our tool chest to deal with any version of the virus. A KPBS investigation finds many people were left out of the pandemic's eviction protections. And San Diego's LGBT theater gets a much-needed remodel. That's ahead on KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Today marks the start of winter break for the University of California, San Diego. But students won't be returning to classrooms in 2022, at least not right away. The university announced yesterday that, due to the rapidly spreading Omicron variant, it'll be back to remote learning, at least until mid-January. Joining me to tell us more is Gary Robbins, reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Gary, welcome. Hi. What exactly did UCSD announce yesterday? It announced that it is going to teach virtually everything online for two weeks, at least two weeks, during the month of uh, January. That will give the university time, they hope, for the big surge in Omicron that's coming to kind of pass through the county. Scientists uh, have been doing modeling that suggests that right after New Year's is going to be a big surge. Um, They know this in part because UC San Diego on campus and in other parts of the county does wastewater testing uh, looking for the COVID virus. And they do that because people shed the virus in their stool and you can pick up on the virus before people actually start to experience symptoms. So it's kind of like an early warning system and they didn't like what they were seeing. They thought it was going to happen around the other parts of the state too. So the university shared that information with the other UC campuses. And by the end of yesterday, seven of the nine undergraduate campuses in the UC system had decided to go online temporarily in part of January. And what does this mean for students who are relying on on on-campus housing? Will dorms be closed or any other campus uh, buildings, or is it only classrooms? It's primarily classrooms. Uh, The university has a a tremendous amount of housing. You know, they can house almost 18,000 people. At the moment, there are still about 4,000 students on campus. Most of them are foreign students or students from other parts of the United States or people who simply can't get home. All of those people will be allowed to stay in the dorms during this period of time. And in January, while the um, online component is underway, students will be allowed to come back to their dorms as well. Some people, you know, simply don't have places to stay or they want to be back on campus. Since the pandemic broke out, the, the university has had one of the lowest infection rates anywhere in the country when it comes to academia, primarily because they test so thoroughly. 
So they're hoping that these, these extra steps that they're taking now will help them get through the surge. You said UCSD was the first to make this decision of returning to remote learning, and then it spread to most but not all other undergraduate UCs. How about the other universities? Is the CSU going to consider remote learning or other community colleges or private universities? Well, they might. Uh, At this point, CSU is still uh, monitoring the situation. But earlier today, the CSU system set out a um, document saying that they were going to require all students and faculty who are eligible to get the um, booster by February 28th at the latest. Then I, I got a note from San Diego State University saying that they're actually expecting to uh, require students to do that by mid-January. I can't remember the precise date, but they're doing it at an earlier date. They have the right to do that. Individual campuses can do it sooner. So everybody's pushing real hard to get the booster. You know, we're about to go to a situation in America where you're not really considered to be fully vaccinated unless you also have the booster. So these university systems are jumping out uh, ahead uh, to be giving everybody the safest possible consequence. So Gary, CSU is going to require boosters, but they're not yet returning to distance learning. UC San Diego is returning to distance learning, but they are not requiring boosters yet. Is, do I have that right? Uh, not quite. Uh, so, uh, so the UC came out real hard yesterday saying, everybody's got to get the booster. And then the campuses in the UC began saying, we're going to do that. And we're also, uh, many of us are going to go to online education for a few weeks, perhaps three weeks in uh, January. How are students reacting to this news of going back to class on Zoom? I imagine they're probably not too happy about it. Yeah, you know, I talked to two uh, students at UC San Diego yesterday. They accepted it for what it was uh, because they realized that this is a very serious situation, but they really don't like it at all for a variety of reasons. Um, You know, I've talked to a lot of students and faculty about this, and they believe that working online is a very alienating experience. It's very lonely. It gets to the point where a lot of students don't even put their, their face on the screen because they feel so remote and distant from what's happening. They want to be on campus. They want the college experience. And so there's a lot of sadness here and a lot of anxiety. People are worrying, oh my God, is this the start of this all over again? At this point, Andrew, it doesn't appear to be that this is going to be a super long-term thing. We're not in the same place we were a year ago. You know, we do have vaccines, so there are more options. But yeah, people are not pleased (laughs) that they're going to be couch surfing at their parents' house again. Has UCSD said anything as to what would actually lead them to bring in-person instruction back? Do they have a clear data metric that will help them determine that it's safe enough to go back to in-person learning? In talking to the infectious disease experts on the campus over the past 48 hours, I don't get the sense from them that they think that's going to be necessary. They think that going online for a couple of weeks in January will be adequate time to do it. But, you know, these viruses behave in ways that we cannot uh, fully anticipate. So we have to, you know, we have to say that up front. We don't know exactly how Omicron is going to behave. It looks to be more transmissible. Uh, scientists are hoping that it is, uh, doesn't cause as many hospitalizations and deaths, but we just don't know yet. We need to see how the um, vaccines and the boosters work against Omicron. I've been speaking with Gary Robbins, who covers science and technology for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Gary, thanks for joining us. Thank you.
Hope for a normal holiday season has trickled away with each day's headlines about the Omicron variant. New case numbers are climbing dramatically as this highly contagious variant circulates among a population with waning immunity. And as always with COVID, researchers are struggling to figure out exactly what kind of danger Omicron poses and how to fight it. Joining me for a weekly COVID update is Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. And Dr. Topol, welcome. Thanks, Maureen. Always good to be with you. Now, the breaking news today is that the FDA has authorized the first antiviral pill against COVID. Tell us about the pill Paxlovid. Yes, this is actually, Maureen, the biggest thing to happen uh, beyond vaccines for the pandemic. I say that for a number of reasons. Firstly, up until now, we've relied on our immune system to help fight the virus, vaccines, and then monoclonal antibodies. But with Omicron, we learned that there's a problem with vaccines and monoclonal antibodies because it can escape our immune system to a significant extent. The great part about Paxlovid as a pill, when taken early, even up to five days, it will work in immunocompromised people even. It works against Omicron and it has an 89% reduction in hospitalizations or death, which is really striking. And it was as safe or even slightly safer than placebo in two randomized trials. One other big bonus, it lowers the viral load in our upper airway by at least tenfold. So it will reduce transmission. And that's really important when you have a hyper contagious virus that's out there right now with Omicron. This is a Pfizer pill. This is Paxlovid again. Do you have to take just one pill? No, it actually is two pills. It's Paxlovid with ritonavir, which is used to increase the blood levels of Paxlovid. It's two tablets of Paxlovid, one ritonavir, twice a day for five days. It comes in a blister pack. It's going to be distributed throughout the United States in the next couple of days. But there's the problem. There's only 200,000 blister packs available, and that's not nearly enough, which is why I called for President Biden to activate the Defense Production Act or some other means of getting production not to rely on just one company. This is a small molecule. It's easy to make, and we should be getting it mass produced so that it can be used throughout the world. Will people be prescribed the pill when they test positive, uh, considering that there are enough pills in circulation? Assuming that there's enough here in San Diego, they have to have a doctor's prescription to get the, the, the pill pack. And yes, that's what we envision happening as early as uh, the beginning of next week. That's right. The beginning of next week. But, but how will the government ramp up production on the new pill? The production right now sits with one company, and that's not enough. We need other companies to make this at scale quickly. And we've been talking, you know, for a whole year about global vaccine equity. Now we're going to be talking about global pill equity. So that's our problem right now. It's going to be in short supply and uh, the access to it is going to be challenging. I also want to take you back on what we just heard in the previous report. You see San Diego's decision to go back to online classes next month. Is that a good idea? It's the only logical thing once we saw what happened in Cornell, where 97% of the students were vaccinated. And then with a matter of days uh, after coming back from Thanksgiving break, there were over 500 students that were infected with Omicron. And then the whole town 
in Tompkins County, Ithaca also took a big hit. So it's a safe thing to do right now. I think I applaud UCSD for making that move. The university environment is tough, but it doesn't have to be uh, protracted. Unfortunately, it's coinciding with the holiday break anyway. So I don't think this is a long-term uh, situation, but in light of what we've seen at Cornell and other universities, it's a wise move. And all CSU schools, including San Diego State, they're not saying they're going to go back online, but they'll now require everyone on campus to have a booster shot. Is that enough of a precaution? Well, we want to really get the precautions up there. It would be the booster, yes, third shot, and rapid tests. Um, That that combination, uh, along with indoor masking, you know, gets close to a full protection. But, you know, unfortunately, we don't use all the things with air filtration, CO2 monitoring, uh, keeping uh, ventilation, windows open. We don't do all the things that we can do to stave off the virus. Now, of course, yesterday, uh, President Biden announced he's making 500 million free COVID tests available to Americans. And that's supposed to start next month. How is that going to help against this surge? Well, it's about a year overdue, Maureen, but it's good. Uh, The only problem is 500 million in a country of 330 million people won't get us very far. In Colorado, they're distributing by mail uh, several tests to each resident uh, uh, on a frequent basis. That's what we should be doing in California. The the new plan sometime in January, it isn't specified how we're going to get access to those tests. It's obviously going to be very limited because 500 million in such a big country is not going to get us very far. But we should get many billions of rapid tests widely distributed because they will help us manage the pandemic. They've been validated uh, extensively. They're used and relied upon in many other countries around the world. And we're way behind on that. So it sounds like the pill is, as far as you're concerned, a complete game changer when it comes to COVID. Yeah, I you know, a lot of people use that term more in game changer, but I just see the pandemic, it isn't a game, you know, it's like, this is serious stuff. But yes, this is transformative. As I said, it's the biggest thing since vaccines to help us in the pandemic. It will be a very big advance in our tool chest to deal with any version of the virus. Okay, so I want to close this, though, by acknowledging the fact that no matter what, People are going to travel this holiday to see family and friends. Mm -hmm. We've already heard that uh, the airports are expecting um, a lot of crowding. Everything is expecting crowds this holiday. So what's your advice? Well, I totally respect the the desire uh, for people and need to travel uh, over the holidays. Uh, There are many things that you can do. Uh, Certainly using better uh, high-quality masks like KN95s, uh, would be a, a, an important uh, part of that. Uh, you know, I would like, and I have called for uh, our administration to make uh, flights only by passengers with triple vaccination or two shots and with less than uh, four months from their second shot. We haven't done that. That would help because you're sitting on a plane for hours uh, and it's not good when you can have anybody jo- uh, board the plane who is not vaccinated or not uh, boosted. That would help. We don't have that enacted. It is the case, by the way, Maureen, in Canada and many other countries. And I just don't understand why that hasn't happened here. That would make uh, travel more safe for everyone. 
Okay, I have been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla and our frequent guest on this topic. Dr. Topol, have a wonderful holiday. You too, Maureen. You and all the crew at KPBS. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Andrew Bowen with Maureen Cavanaugh. Jade Heineman has the day off. The KPBS Investigates podcast took a closer look at evictions and the efforts to keep people housed here in San Diego County since the start of the pandemic. In a two-part series, race and equity reporter Christina Kim looked at what worked, who fell through the cracks, and what's next for the region's renters and landlords as housing becomes increasingly scarce, more expensive, and protections evaporate. Yeah. Chip. Casa. La maison. Yeah. Chu. Home. What do we mean when we say we're home? It can be the place you grew up, where you raised your family, the place your friends gather, the place you only sleep at, or even the dog that never leaves your side. Home can have as many meanings as there are ways of saying it. But on March 19th, 2020, Home quickly came to mean one thing for Californians lucky enough to be housed, shelter and safety from COVID-19. We direct a statewide order for people to stay at home. In the weeks and months that followed, the state and federal government enacted a series of laws and programs to keep people housed. As the economy ground to a standstill, and unemployment in California soared, eviction protections and then rental assistance programs sought to help renters and landlords. If you don't have a home, where are you going to rest? Ramon Toscano and his wife Cristina have lived in their two-bedroom Vista apartment for the past six years. Together with their six children, who range in age from 12 years old to an infant that's just a few months old, and Cristina's mother, they have made the small apartment their home. Before the pandemic, Ramon worked 30 to 40 hours a week as a day laborer. And he made it work. It could and did get tight by the time the end of the month came around. Paying over $1,700 rent on top of electricity, internet, and feeding growing kids wasn't easy. But he paid his bills. When the pandemic hit and shelter-in-place was enforced in California, though, the work quickly dried up. And Ramon was scared to venture out. Even I was afraid to go out. I saw on TV that people were dying and how things were going. And, well, even I was afraid. As the months passed without work, it started to get harder to pay rent. 
Finally, in June 2021, Ramon got rental assistance from the county to pay all his back rent. When things began to open up again, Ramon began to pick up work. But then, Cristina, who was pregnant with their baby, began to feel sick. Her blood pressure spiked and she was put on bed rest. These days, in order to help Cristina with the newborn and their other five children, Ramon stays home during the week. There's no money for childcare. And Cristina, she can't do it alone. Cualquier problema, yo sé que mi esposo está conmigo. Whatever the problem, I know my husband is with me and that he will help me get ahead. Y él me ayuda a salir adelante. Es quien me ha ayudado, es quien me ha cuidado. He is the one that has helped me. He's the one that's taking care of me. Ramon goes out on the weekends to pick up jobs. But all the money he makes goes to food and other bills. He now owes rent for July through October. It's never been this tight before. Sí, batallamos, papá, la renta, pero no tan así, ¿entiendes? Que... We've struggled to pay rent before, but not like this, where I stick my hand in my pocket and there's not even a single coin. And he's worried. It's the kind of worry that sits heavy on his shoulders. What happens if he doesn't get rental assistance? Or if the funds dry up? Ramon looks thinner and more tired than when we talked just a few months ago. The statewide eviction ban ended in late September, and now he and his family are more vulnerable than ever. It's something his landlord was quick to remind him. Vino la manager y la supervisora recordarnos que ya, pues prácticamente que ya no teníamos protección, pues que qué íbamos a hacer. The manager and the supervisor came to remind us that practically we don't have protection, you know. They wanted to see what we were going to do. O sea, nosotros ya sabiendo, pero o sea, nos vinieron a recordar por si no, no sabíamos, ¿no? O sea, we already knew, but they came to remind us in case we didn't. As we sit on the couch mere hours after his landlord's visit, Ramon is trying to think through what comes next. No, pues no tengo plan B, o sea, no, o sea, pues, tal vez llegar a un acuerdo con los managers, propietarios y, y empezarles a pagar. I don't have a plan B, to be honest. Maybe I can reach an agreement with the landlords and start paying. Pero por el momento no. Solamente estamos esperanzados a ellos, antes de que nos puedan volver a ayudar y ya. But for now, we're just hoping we can get help again. He's already applied for more rental assistance and is keeping track of the application. For now, he's got a place to stay. But like so many other tenants across San Diego County, the worries continue. At the height of the pandemic, tenant protections were a sometimes confusing patchwork of local, state, and federal policies, all working in conjunction. But they all shared the same goal, staving off an avalanche of evictions. The White House and the CDC announced a major eviction moratorium. President Trump signing an executive order giving the CDC broad authority to ban nationwide evictions. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention just issued a new federal moratorium on evictions. State and local governments have distributed just 11% of the $46 billion. The money is getting out much too slowly and it may not reach many of these families in time. 
There was a lot happening, and it was hard to keep track of it all. I remember speaking to Anne Orche, a tenant in Los Angeles, in September 2020. She told me keeping track of everything was overwhelming. You know, because there are all these different dates floating around and things are changing, like it can become a full-time job to kind of sort through what the law is today. So let's do a quick breakdown. The federal government had a series of eviction protections that lasted until August 2021. Meanwhile, the state of California and San Diego County also enacted a series of protections, including an eviction ban that was extended twice. Add to that rental assistance programs which provide money to landlords and tenants to keep people housed, it was a lot to keep track of. Now, nearly two years after the California shelter-in-place order was first issued, we're trying to make sense of where we are now and what actually worked. There were so many moving parts and different institutions overseeing the various programs. It wasn't always an easy or clear road. And some tenants still found themselves locked out. Gabriel Guzman, a veteran and father from Chula Vista, is sifting through a box filled with stacks of paper. Over the past year, he's documented and kept everything that's happened to his family since the unexpected happened. On the 23rd of September, they filed for Nala Fultetiner. And he had given, gone, the owner had gone on and on how he really appreciated veterans, what we did for this country, and, and then he did that. An unlawful detainer. In other words, he was evicted in the midst of the pandemic, something that totally caught him and his family off guard. The lease on their Chula Vista apartment had expired just a few weeks earlier. But Gabriel had been working with the landlord to extend it and was waiting on his unemployment to kick in in order to pay his rent. He tried to fight the eviction in court, spending money he didn't have to hire a lawyer. In the end, though, it didn't matter. Despite all the protections, Gabriel's lease was up. They lost the battle. And on December 15th, 10 days before Christmas, Gabriel, his wife, and their three children were homeless. And so we were actually out of, out without a place for a month. And that was really scary and a lot of anxiety uh, attached to that. And even my youngest daughter, my three-year-old, would always ask when we were going home. She's like, I go home. And she would cry. And even now, um, she'll go from her room at night and cry cry into ours and kind of check see whether we're there, we're in the same place. And so we don't know what the long-term effects are going to be on uh, all three of my kids. Gabriel never thought he'd find himself looking for a new place during a pandemic with no job. His once easy smile and gregarious laugh now have an edge of weariness he can't shake. I feel bad for my kids. I feel that I had let my kids down as a man, being able to support them and keep, them, keep a roof on uh, over their head. As a veteran, I also was very upset because I had given uh, a total of nine years to this country. He was able to find a new place, but his stepdaughter, who's in a wheelchair, is staying with her grandmother because the apartment they're living in now has stairs. Gabriel says that as a veteran, he was used to taking care of himself. 
He never applied for rental assistance, even though he would have qualified. I always felt that I would rebound, and I, I always felt like, you know what, let people that really need it use it. Because when, you know, when you think you need or you're in a bad situation, there's always someone else that needs it more than you do. And so we just thought it was the right thing to do. We said, no, I think we can, we can make it through this without getting assistance. Let people, other people have access to it. And he wasn't the only one hesitant to apply for rental assistance when it first became available. Many people didn't know the funds existed. Or if they did, they were wary of them. Money with no strings attached seemed like too good of a deal. The state, county, and city had to devise whole systems to distribute the money, while community groups worked to get the word out. These days, the programs are working a lot better, and as long as assistance funds are available, tenants and landlords can use them to pay 100% of back and even future rent. And landlords cannot evict tenants for non-payment of rent if they can show they've applied for rental assistance. But for some mom-and-pop landlords, these continued protections are problematic and feel uneven. I'm seeing my savings dwindle and my credit card debt rise. I'm feeling afraid and hopeless about the situation. Landlords like Katie, who doesn't want us to use her last name because she's afraid it might impact her small business. She never thought she would be both a landlord and a tenant. I purchased a condo and I lived there for about five years and then I had just kind of gotten tired of the area, you know, it's it's a very urban area, a lot of density, so I really had a longing for something that was a little more spacious and so I rented out my condo, found a place that I loved that was, you know, just much more peaceful. Katie moved out and had a good run of tenants for a while. Then in June 2019, a new tenant moved in. She had issues with her pretty quickly. She was late on rent, didn't get her rental insurance, and Katie's pretty sure she has a dog, even though she's not supposed to. Then COVID came. And while her tenant still had a job, she eventually stopped paying rent. She managed to pay rent all the way through the end of September of 2020. It was late a lot. She at one point made the money order out to herself instead of me and then subsequently lost the mailbox keys. So there was um, a lot of complexity with, with what was going on. Katie got some money through a city rental relief program that goes to landlords, and her tenant got rental assistance to pay back rent. They both have applications into the city for more funds, But as they wait to hear back, Katie feels stuck. She can't evict her tenant, but she isn't collecting the rent. As of November 1st, my tenant will owe over $7,000 in back rent. She has not resumed paying rent, and I don't have any reason to think that she will in November. This is despite having reason to believe that she's employed. As she waits to hear if she's been approved for more city funds, Katie still has to pay rent on her own home, plus fees for the condo she's renting. Without information about whether rent relief applications will be kept in limbo indefinitely, I can't make a good choice for myself about whether I should be thinking about moving into the condo or selling it. Katie says with all of this stress, whenever she finally gets things sorted out, she will just put the condo into property management. They'll raise the rent, which Katie feels bad about, but she doesn't want to deal with this hassle anymore. 
The past year and a half hasn't been easy for landlords like Katie or for tenants like Ramon or Gabriel. And now, as we hopefully come out of the darkest part of the pandemic and society begins to open up, we're left wondering, what did all these millions of dollars in relief achieve? We asked Marley Kirkland. She's a spokesperson for the Southern California Rental Housing Association, which represents landlords. I think it's made a a hefty impact in our region. Specifically, the San Diego region has fared way better than lots of other parts of the country, where in some cases uh, they weren't successfully able to get any money out and they've had their programs kind of taken away from them. So San Diego is really kind of a model for emergency rental assistance. And again, you know, nothing's perfect, but we're really proud of our local ERAP programs. The Housing Association recently commissioned a study on how landlords fared during the pandemic. Our study showed that about $2.4 billion in lost rent for San Diego area housing providers. And this goes back to about March of 2020 or, you know, when the pandemic kind of started. Molly says eviction bans led to some abuses, like what we heard from Katie. But she understands why they were put in place. Moving forward, she wants to see some of the pandemic programs continue. There's a need for some sort of permanent form of rental assistance out there because, you know, it shouldn't necessarily take a pandemic to highlight how the loss of a job can impact you for a few months. This happens outside of pandemic times. Looking back, even though tenants like Gabriel slipped through the cracks and were still evicted, We now know the eviction bans and rental assistance have kept thousands of families safe in their homes. The number of unlawful detainers or evictions filed in the San Diego County Superior Court dropped 62 percent from 2019 to 2020, according to records obtained by ACE, a local tenants group. Legal Aid Society of San Diego, which handles a lot of local eviction cases, said the demand for their services dropped when county and state protections were in place. But now that the protections are largely gone, the number of calls are on the rise again. And so if we're having hundreds of thousands of families who can't pay the rent and are being evicted for non-payment of rent, they're not only going to be suffer housing instability, it's going to be difficult for them to rent again. Gilberto Vera is the senior attorney for the housing team at the Legal Aid Society of San Diego. He's expecting an increase in eviction filings in December, which will affect tenants for years to come. One, they could have an eviction on the record. Two, they're going to get a negative reference, likely from the landlord who is evicting them. And then three, they're going to be saddled with thousands of dollars of rental debt to their current landlord when they do eventually move. So it's, it's going to make it not only hard to find housing, but it's going to impact their credit for years. If the eviction cliff that so many have warned about is drawing closer, we are now standing on the edge looking down. And that's definitely taking a toll on families like Ramon and Cristina in Vista. The constant threat of eviction, of not knowing what's going to happen the next day. Cristina says it impacted her pregnancy. All this stress, I think it's what caused me to have blood pressure during my pregnancy. 
because in all my former pregnancies, I never had high blood pressure. Mi niño me decía, ya, ya no llores, mami. Pero yo le decía a mi esposo, es que no sé qué tengo. My son would come and say, yeah, yeah, don't cry, mommy. And I would tell my husband, I don't know what's going on with me. And she says the stress is also impacting Ramon. Yo sé que tiene mucha presión. Y, y lo admiro porque nunca, nunca ha venido y me ha dicho, sabes que ya no puedo. I know that he has a lot of pressure and I admire him because he has never come to me and said, I can't do it anymore. Yo nada más veo que se encierra en el baño y yo creo ahí está ya él solo. I just see that he locks himself in the bathroom and there he's alone. The past few months are catching up on Ramon. He chokes up remembering how he had to collect cans and glass in order to make enough money to pay for gas to take Christina to her doctor's appointment. But through the tears, his determination shines through. There's no other option but to keep going for Christina and his kids. Pero, como le digo, no. No me tengo que dejar caer por los niños, ¿me entiendes? Porque pues, ellos no saben. Y... Tenemos que echar ganas y salir adelante, ¿no? But like I'm telling you, I can't get down because the kids, they don't know. We got to keep trying and get ahead, no? Pero pues ahí estamos, ellos están echándole ganas, ¿entiendes? Más que nada por la niña que, pues como le digo, ellos no saben nada por lo que estamos pasando, ¿ah? ¿eh? O sea. Well, here we are trying our hardest. More than anything, we're doing it for the kids. Like I said, they don't know what's going on. Pero pues echarle ganas por ellos y, y seguir... No sé, peleando hasta el final, ¿me entiendes? Mantenernos aquí. Well, we have to keep trying for them and keep fighting until the end and stay here. Ramon is waiting to hear back if he will receive rental assistance for the back rent he owes for the summer and possible future rent. That's all he and other California tenants have left in terms of protections. But he doesn't know how much longer he can wait. Some of Cristina's friends just moved to Kansas. And now she and Ramon are thinking that they might try and move out there too. Where it's cheaper. Where there's a job waiting. And where they can get a house even if it's far from home. That was KPBS race and equity reporter Christina Kim in part one of a two-part series on evictions on the KPBS Investigates podcast. Tune in for part two on tomorrow's show. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation. Presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Andrew Bowen. Like many venues, Diversionary Theater was forced to close its doors at the beginning of the pandemic. 
but it put the time to good use by moving ahead with a major and much-needed remodel. The renovated theater reopened at the end of September, and that's when KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando had Diversionary's executive artistic director Matt Morrow give us a tour of the renovated facility. Matt, we are sitting in what is now the Clark Cabaret. So explain what this space is here. Yeah, so it's really wonderful. We blew out the entire front wall of Diversionary's ground floor. So when you walk up to the building, it's very clear and that it's open for everyone to come and enjoy. It's also a safety and security measure in terms of COVID-19 and airflow. So it's, it's very open and breezy. We have an indoor-outdoor experience for patrons to come and enjoy. And this space is uh, Diversionary's way of honoring the gay bar experience, which is an important safe space to the LGBTQ community, historically speaking. The gay bar of decades past were spaces that the LGBTQ community would gather and commune, and then ultimately launch the LGBTQ movement for equal rights. And as of late, you know, as the LGBTQ plus community has been entering the mainstream, our gay spaces have been going away. And so this space is meant to honor the history and importance of having a space like this specifically for the LGBTQ community to come together and celebrate and honor our community. And one of the ways that you're honoring that is on the counter space of your bar and on your wallpaper. Yes, a cool feature of the space is that our bar and our wallpaper in the space features images and newspaper articles and newspaper headlines about the LGBTQ community, both locally and nationally. We did a wonderful outreach project with Lambda Archives of San Diego, where we asked the community to send in their photos of them protesting during pride parades and engaging in queer spaces locally. And then we mixed those in with other historical photos that we gathered from Lambda Archives to create a collage that is permanently embedded inside the actual bar and walls of the space. Matt, I had a chance to talk to you during the pandemic, which Diversionary Theater put to good use by doing this remodel. What has that process been like, and what is it like being on the verge of reopening for in-person performances? Oh my God, it's so exciting. You know, the pandemic was, is, it's continuing to persist, right? It's been such a tough time for everyone, but this project has been a beacon for us to focus on and to work towards. So we, we couldn't produce as a theater, uh, producing live entertainment for our community. So we turned to focus on how we can make this space really unique and really special and also safe. As a queer space, we are very proud that for 36 years, we've been offering a safe space to our community. The pandemic has challenged us to reevaluate what a safe space means. And so we looked at the science and uh, started integrating a bunch of safety measures to really maximize the safety and security of our actual space. We optimized our air circulation systems and integrated a MRF-13 filtration in our HVAC for our main stage. You can see on our cabaret tables and part of our bar up there is all made out of copper and copper actually neutralizes viral contagion. And then we also designed easy to clean surfaces. The seats upstairs in our main stage are leatherette, so they're super easy to wipe clean. And 
uh, make sure that everyone who engages in our space feels safe and welcome. And when people return to an in-person performance here, they're also going to be finding a brand new stage? Yes, our newly coined Alfred Mazur and Robert Granite main stage has been completely renovated. We have new theater seats. We took down a wall, so we've expanded the stage itself to make it a little bit larger. It's still an incredibly intimate stage with 102 seats. So our patrons who are used to coming and engaging with our, our theater productions in an intimate way, it'll still be an intimate experience. It'll just be a little bit larger. And part of the renovation for this lower level is you have a very nice new little stage. Yeah, the stage down here in the cabaret is really special. It's, of course, like everything, diversionary, intimate. And we have a parlor grand down here, which is going to permanently live on our little intimate stage here. Two nights a week, we'll have somebody on the keys. So to honor sort of the cabaret, the piano bar cabaret feel of our queer space. And yeah, we'll have musical entertainment down here on the stage, stand up, all sorts of fun things. And part of the remodel, did that also involve creating an educational space here? <laughs> yeah, so Diversionary is not just a theater. We also have an arts education wing that has been flourishing over the past seven years. We have seven arts education programs that serve all of San Diego County, thousands of young people and older LGBTQ people and our allied citizens. That is really more and more every day becoming a big part of what we do here at Diversionary. And to that end, we have a space dedicated for all of our work in arts education. It's the Tom Maddox and Randy Clark Arts Education Center. And it's a space where our director of arts education and teaching artists can convene to plan curriculum development and lesson plans. And it's also a space that's outfitted with teleconferencing capabilities so we can speak with our partners locally without having to be in person, as well as our national partners that we have now. One thing that the pandemic did for us was show us that we could broaden our reach via an online platform. We inaugurated a new program in the teen playwriting lab that's specifically for queer young playwrights. And it was so popular that we had to run two over the pandemic. And that's something that we're going to continue online for the future. And that program is in partnership with an off-Broadway theater company in New York City called Rattlestick Playwrights Theater. Uh, and so that space is going to help uh, maintain all of our relationships with partner organizations across the country. That was Diversionaries Matt Morrow speaking with KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.